Hello friends, how you doing? It's Matt. You're listening to episode 50 of the Looking Sideways Action Sports podcast. Big day for me this one, been trailing it for a while, but yeah, uh, here we are, hit the milestone. After about 14 months, I think I've been doing it, maybe a little bit longer, but yeah, thanks for tuning in, hope you enjoy it. And I uh, had to do it really, didn't I? Decided to invite back my very first guest for this one, Ed Lee. Um, still one of the most popular guests I've had on the show, snowboarder, TV presenter, and uh, yeah, it seemed suitable one to bring it back full circle and go right back to the very start to uh, pick up where we left off in episode one. Now, if you've listened to that first episode, you know all about Ed and his incredible two-decade career in action sports, whether as an athlete or as the UK's most high-profile snowboarding broadcaster. Today, he presents Ski Sunday, fronts the BBC's Olympic coverage and is in demand as a commentator, pundit and journalist. And throughout it all, Ed's been inspired by one thing only, his unquenchable stoke for the sideways life, which as such makes him the perfect guest for episode 50. Now, I've known Ed, as you may have gathered from the first one, and you definitely will gather from this one, since the mid-90s, and count him as one of my oldest and dearest friends. So yeah, it's always great for us to catch up, swap gossip, find out where we are in our lives, and that's definitely the case in this one, which sees us go deep into the Olympics, and the current state of snowboarding, pick up our ongoing argument about Sean White, which has been going on for about 10 years now, find out where Ed's at in his career, and discuss how our love for skating, surfing and snowboarding just keeps increasing as we get older. Now, Ed's a born storyteller, and I caught him on a good day. So, uh, yeah, there's a lot of names and references dropped in this one, which means the show notes are at encyclopedic, encyclopedic, easy for me to say, levels. And I definitely recommend rooting around there to get some context to some of the things we discuss. But uh, I'll leave it there for now. Let you enjoy the episode uh, with Ed Lee on the state of the snowboarding nation. Enjoy and I'll see you at the end. Yeah, yeah, it was a pretty bad one. There you go. Ah, let's just see how we get on. Yeah, I mean, it's... How loud are you going to talk? About that? Yeah, there we testing, go. Testing, testing, one, two, three. I am going to record it on air as well, as I don't need to explain why again, but, you know, a little safety net, I think is probably a good idea. So has that got a good mic in it? Yeah, this is what I recorded the intro on. You know, the little musical. Yeah. Straight into the mic. Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> yeah. I like it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it was Matt Ward that did it. Was it? Yeah. Um. Yeah. He he just he just sort of banged it out really. There you go. Never yeah. Fun. Yeah. It was definitely impressive. Right. Get the. Get the old click off. Not going to be needing that. Um, right. Okay. I think we're good. Eddie, how you doing? I'm very well, thank you. Yeah, round two. You get the big round two. That's kind of like a proper thing in podcasts as well. When when I first started doing it, I was a bit like, oh, I can't really repeat, repeat. And then I just realised that everyone repeats everyone gets guests on twice there's no point in being precious about it so i kind of thought well you know 
episode 50. Get the uh, get the original guest back on and here you are. I feel a little bit like um, the Billy Connolly, Connolly to uh, your parkey. Yeah, that was the thing, wasn't it? He always, uh, he always got him on. Yeah, well, I, I mean, I can't believe how quickly episode 50's come around, to be honest. Well, I've got to say, having done the first one, I've listened to probably 40, 45 of them. I've been fairly dedicated and the reason I'm really proud to be asked about the fact that you've managed to get 50 through and the quality especially in the last 10 or 15 has been immense there have been a lot of really interesting ideas spouted out there and it puts more and more pressure on each of your guests I think which ones did you enjoy um as a snowboarder David Benedek yeah it wasn't that popular that one but He's been so, as the podcast revealed, and anyone who's actually followed his career already knew, he's so modest and internally driven. You, He wouldn't necessarily pop up on your radar unless you'd actively gone looking for him. But no. the ideas that he's, what he did for snowboarding in the first place, you can see that he's continued that in every other avenue of his life post-snowboarding. Yeah. And that was what was lovely. As you called it, it's a grown-up conversation. It was it was very interesting and quite demanding, but at the same time rewarding. Well, he he is a truly selfless creative. I mean, he what I really liked about that conversation was there's that thing with creativity where, you know, you're supposed to park your ego at the door and you're not meant to worry about whether you achieve success or not. You know, you're just meant to do the work for the sake of it, which is bollocks really i think isn't it i think most people are, are very driven by ego and you know and, and they're definitely like the the idea that you might be successful is is a powerful thing and it's it's difficult to shelve but with him i actually just genuinely thought he doesn't care he he's just really interested in doing doing the work and yes he's interested in that but there was there was definitely a and it surprised me because he brought it up. There was an issue of confidence there. Yeah. Which for someone who's achieved that on was his scale. Mental. And I've seen it in other people at that level. People who have brilliant abilities. Maybe they might be physical abilities. But I've seen it where confidence doesn't quite translate into every other aspect of their life. And I was really surprised by that. But well, I, um, I guess a lot of it is to do with the front that you put on though, isn't it? To, to try and get stuff done. You know, your game, the game face that you've got to put on to, um, you know, some people that I think can just bang it out and, and just, you know, like not, not worry, not need to get themselves in a state where they can do it or whatever. But I think, I think for a lot of people, yeah, you just, you, you need to get yourself into that. I mean, you said earlier before we started recording that there's been a few themes coming out and imposter syndrome is definitely a theme that is really coming out in a lot of them from people that you like you say that you that have achieved a lot and you would you would think have got nothing to worry about on that score but it's it's really common definitely well jeremy sladen being a prime example he thought he didn't have anything to say and yet for me it's one of the most inspirational but you talked about that as well in your in your first one you were talking about when you first got the olympic gig and all that my chair is really squeaky isn't it um you yeah you were saying you had to get over that yourself a little bit um, it's difficult casting your mind back because I it's an excess of confidence is never something I've struggled with. That's true. And <laughs> my wife calls it uh, Ed's world, where I just believe something's going to happen and I'll chase it down until it does. Um, and I do have that belief. For the Olympics, it was just funny. It was a world that I didn't understand, and 
and never inhabited that sort of mainstream media world, <clears throat> you suddenly turn up at the Olympics like that. And it's, it is really daunting. I had no doubt that I could do the job I'd been hired to do. What I was more concerned about was how people would react to it. Right. Whether they'd be outraged and I'd be banished from television forever. What, your peers or, or the... No, not peers. No, the, the viewers. people who'd hired me. Okay. Essentially. Right. The the okay. That's interesting. So you weren't worried about what the viewers might think. No. No. no you were confident that you could deliver on that front. I'd done enough. I'd been at Bordex enough, and okay, probably half the Bordex crowd are passionate snowboarders, and half of them have just turned up. You knew that tiramisu gag was going to work. <laughs> you road tested She's it. She's got it all. She's a tiramisu <laughs> of snowboarding. You road, road tested it live enough times. Exactly. Yeah. So how was this year? Um, really good fun. Really good fun. I still, I'm a core snowboarder through and through, but I've looked, I've seen behind the veil of the Olympics and I know it's, it's difficult because they do the biggest TV rights deals in the world. They have the biggest sponsorship deals in the world. They're only, the host city pays for all of the infrastructure, 80% volunteer workforce there's a lot of money going astray there but the moment those events starts it's very difficult not to suspend your cynicism and just enjoy the sport because it especially in snowboarding we've been waiting four years almost we haven't had we had a couple of pipe contests this winter that got Iumo Scotty James and Sean in the same pipe at the same time but in slope we rarely get that these days and I feel genuinely robbed as a passionate snowboarder that we don't get to see. Like even the US Open post the games. Had, I mean, that's our biggest independent event. And it felt a, just a little bit flat this year. Like there was the post-Olympic come down. And there's, it's un... Like you cannot debate it anymore. The Olympics is the big deal. And that's yeah. what everyone's prioritising. So it, it Despite it everyone's rises. better efforts, yeah, it's now the de facto one once every four year, you know like defining event isn't it basically despite all the efforts of everybody yeah. that tried to sort of create this well and you were really involved in that because you you know you've written things about a possible new tour that kind of kind of like Starla in the last episode was or the last episode but two that we recorded he uh yeah he was saying a similar thing that he thought you know that this should be it was really quite a similar idea to yours like you know the, the dream tour idea like you know change the tour so you can get all the best riders in you can do events that like represent the different areas of snowboarding and the different types of riding it's been a dream for a while hasn't it yeah i mean you can put a link up to it there's a white lines article i wrote three or four years ago and not much has changed i've i update the little presentation thing that i've got every six months or so i send it out and i got some nibbles last week on it a guy sponsorship broker said look this is what I'm pitching and it, it hurts me it's it's always offended me that snowboarders didn't get the chance to compete at that level but having done the US Open for the last couple of years I've I've worked with um, Tom Monterosa and Tina Dixon Jack Matrani on those and you put together a really good broadcast team with really eclectic influences even within snowboarding and let them start to pull it apart and chew it up you get some really interesting snowboarding chat plus you're watching brilliant competition I, and I suddenly felt cheated I was like 
we don't get the WSL. We don't have Street League. We don't have the Vans Park Series. We don't have a co- consistent and coherent world tour of snowboarding. If anything, it's getting worse and worse. The Olympics have not dragged it together. It's falling to bits. Yeah, this feels even more fragmented, I think, the current state of play. I th- it will change. The qualification process has to change and become more coherent. But still, we're not. We're watching riders specialise where I think the sport was at its richest 15, 20 years ago when riders could do everything. Yeah, They really did focus on that. And we've still got plenty of those left who could do it. The Blake Pauls, the Bode Merrills, the Starley Sandbecks, Forrest Baileys. You could probably, probably still put Travis Rice, John Jackson, Eric Jackson in the mix there. And if you had five events, a bank slalom to qualify people, transition event, a hip, quarter, half pipe, um, then a street kind of something along the Haldor lines of what street is kind of kickers. And I'd, I'd like to see something like Rampage, where you take a build crew, some like big plant machinery in there and build some massive takeoffs landings but around different bits and pieces one supernatural style event and then after that lot you take the top eight to alaska let them film for 10 days and present their two best lines there is there are like independent events that are showcasing that type of creativity aren't there There was that one in ishkul the other week that that klaus was involved klaus marco yeah yeah and then there was you know like i almost cracked a gag then about bank slaloms because they've become such a thing haven't they in the last few years you know like everyone's doing a bank slalom it's like but it's but, it's but it is still super, the foundation yeah exactly and it's a really accessible means of of contest isn't it for people and it it and this is the funny thing it's just turning you're just turning but time and again it's the best riders in the world who win yeah like it's the foundation skill that then builds everything else yeah but you've got it's it's almost gone back to you know, like a mid eighties kind of thing where you have got these little pockets of creativity independently. And then you've got this, you know, separate contest thing that's going on. That is the sort of so-called mainstream pinnacle, isn't it? You know? So with all that in mind, and like you say, given that you're somebody who's like you say, core snowboarder and, and is very, very aware of all the, the nuances of the argument, you still get sucked in, don't you? I mean, I watched it all, you know, like every, it is, when all said and done, it was a great contest this year. Well, not all of it, but the pipe particularly was great. It's, yeah, you. I sit there and I watch the. You sit sit down to start watching them. I've got one of my best friends sat next to me, and you get to enjoy some brilliant sport. And you've got I've I prep now for the Olympics. It starts easily the winter before. And I'm trying to watch every single contest. I want to see everyone ride. And that last month, watching X Games and the Larks Open and all of your editorial building towards, you've built then all of your stories and then you're just picking up gossip when you get there. And the luxury of being able to immerse yourself that deeply in the sport for that long is just, it's glorious. I love it. And what did you feel from your side that, there was a bit, you know, you you were almost you almost went mainstream. Do you know what I mean? Because because from I think four years ago we did talk about this in your in your first interview. I think you know, obviously there was that thing with Jenny and the commentary, and there was there was you know it was complaints about that. And this year you did the same thing essentially. You know, you you but it was 
very popular and the BBC jumped on it massively. You know, there was little montages of your and Tim's like best quotes, wasn't there? And they basically really promoted that side of it. Did you did you feel that difference at your end as well? Are you yeah. involved in that? I mean, are you No, no. We the freestyle this time, it's it was a really weird setup actually for games because they the freestyle was out on its own. 45, 50 minutes up the road, but they'd got all of the athletes back at the village. So they were essentially being bussed in, but we were all sat in the Phoenix Park area. So didn't see that much of the athletes unless we bust ourselves down. So you got to socialise during the day, you'd see everyone, but um, there certainly wasn't, Sochi had a real family atmosphere to it for the snowboarders definitely and the skiers there was a lot of it was day and night it was all going on whereas this felt maybe a little more polished but on the flip side if you did a walk it was one of the loveliest things on the first or second day I was there for slope style qualification you walk along the commentary you you go up the back of the grandstand to get to the commentary and the judges are on the first you you're in this lift and the judges are on the first layer and then you go up to the second layer and it's all the commentary booths and there was Todd Richards for the US. There was Jermaine Bratton for Norway. Swiss German was Jan Simen. Swiss French was Darius Harichin. And Canadian was Craig McMorris. Uh, French was Matt Crapel. There was Tim and I, which were all of the major broadcasters or the broadcasters who buy rights. Yeah. And they'd all got a snowboarder there. A proper snowboarder a as proper well. A proper snowboarder, yeah. Like yeah. N- enough Olympic medals on that floor. Yeah, yeah. It's quite it's- a lineup. Yeah, and that's how seriously the broadcasters take snowboarding now. That's how much weight it has. Yeah. I mean, from the outside, it f- certainly felt like this was the one that where snowboarding had the most clout. You know, it was clearly the the kind of blue ribbon event of the whole thing, it, it seemed to me. I mean, I know I've kind of got a bit of bias there, but it did, it did seem that way. And it did seem like it was the event that captured the imagination the most. It had, you know, it had a lot of multiple storylines. You know, you had the... The stuff about the course, the weather conditions, you know, you had those sort of negative sides, but then you had the Big Air, which was, seemed to be a success, and you had the great pipe event, you know, Chloe Kim and Sean White. It, it definitely was like throughout the games, it was it was bubbling away, wasn't it? It was never present, you know. I, I mean, I'm biased, but for me, men's pipe was possibly the best narrative of any of those sports there the alpine skiing didn't really deliver no it, it usually it does well esther ledica was the biggest yeah story in in alpine wasn't she much to everybody's annoyance and i, I made <laughs> i made great fair well this is an interesting thing because i made great fair of the fact that a snowboarder had won an alpine medal and one of the skiers turned around he looked at me said uh the way I saw it, a skier won a snowboarder's medal <laughs> <laughs> because she's always done both. So, um, but we 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 actually come back to the world tour idea that we were just talking about because snowboarding outstrips most of the on snow sports. Uh, I think ski jumping's the only one that did it in Sochi. I haven't seen viewing figures for uh, Korea, but. Uh, snowboarding is so so successful especially if you take out alpine that actually drags the figures down if you look just at slope style big air and half pipe it rinses everyone in Sochi, it was doing like 50 million average uh global viewing figures but we can't back that up in between the olympic cycle and that's not not a good thing for the sport to have this surge 
once every four years and then nothing in between. It's it's cleaning the sport out and slowly, I think whether we like it or not, slowly that will be to the detriment of the culture. Why do, why do you say that? What do you think? Because we start losing all of the things that I think the richest parts of the culture and athletes specialise and it opens the door to... I had a long conversation with the Swiss photographer, uh, Lotzer, about this, and I was talking about whether or not the Olympics were a good or a bad thing. And he said the Olympics in isolation are just look at hot dog skiing and see what it was, the coolest, raddest thing on the mountain, late 60s and 70s, and what it's become in less than 15 years. By 88, it was ski ballet moguls and aerials. And you've aerials, I, I had to commentate on them this year and I was looking at it and I was absolutely gobsmacked that we were watching a subjective judged sport and there's no differentiation between anyone's tricks they will do exactly the same jump in exactly the same way with the same technique and it's that's terrifying if you're a snowboarder how far off that are we I mean that is yeah I mean big air will be a quad cork with a mute and it's I mean yeah, I mean that. Well, that is the like, like you said. That's the cultural argument, isn't it? Especially as it gets ever more polarized from like three years of of snowboarding and then one year of this. And you can see it with the riders as well, because one of the things that Starla said in that interview was, "Oh well, I've had a tough year because I've had to concentrate on the hard tricks." You know what I mean? Like, yeah. and even just even just him saying that, even just, I mean, he couldn't have made it clearer that he just didn't ever want to do another you know another trip in his life 16, do you know yeah. what i mean he, he he was he was a bit like well and i've then, got i've got i've got to do doing. it because because you know i need to do it because it's the olympics but yeah. he, he it was clearly like well thank god that's over i can get back to actual snowboarding for three years and know? i i had a chat with him about that beautiful clip he put out in january the backside 360 melon to tail wheelie down the landing I mean, yeah that, that's not that's what you want to see as a snowboarder i could watch things like that all day i think i nearly did i watched it for about two hours yeah exactly and that's and that's what he when he's got the choice that's what he's doing isn't it you know that's the the creativity that he's following so yeah i mean it is it is interesting it's basically it's just becoming an ever more sort of lucrative and high profile cul-de-sac in a way isn't it you know of the sport it's basically creative cul-de-sac that's that thing that's going to happen but like you say then you've got the then you've got the fact that it is you do you do get sucked in, so it's it is it is a funny one. I mean, well, how you, can you not if you watch that half pipe event? And I I got a question into Sean at the press conference just before back on first name terms, eh? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> uh, yeah, he had to answer the question. It was a presser, um, but I said to him, "Have we seen your best run yet?" And I was pretty sure we had. Right? Yeah, um, the was it Snowmass? I think was the event where. Scotty James threw his helmet down at disgust at the perfect hundred. Um, and Sean said no. And I thought, oh. and all I wanted from that event was for Sean not to have a victory lap. Because then, you know, if he hasn't got a victory lap, it's going to be on. And the, the way that unfolded was phenomenal. And I'm, the one thing I'm really disappointed about is that Tim and I ended up looking out of the window watching that. Right. Because the camera angles were so bad. They'd set them up so badly. You couldn't see. There wasn't that classic shot. Like any self-respecting snowboard director would say, I want that first backside air hit and I want it brilliantly so we can all tell how big that backside air is. And we never got it. That's rule 101 of half pipe filming. 
give me the first backside air and make sure we can tell how big it is. And there was three foot difference between Sean and Iumu, but no one watching yeah, no TV one could have tell, told that. I only really realised that from reading the Transworld article with one of the judges where he was like, well, you just couldn't see it, but it basically it was a lot bigger, you know, and that's why you won, really. i tell you what's fascinating. But for each event, whenever I watch the qualifying or practice uh, or in between runs, I go down and I see the judges and I've got a million questions. Like, why did this happen? Why did this happen? Not aggressive, just trying to yeah, work try out. Yeah, I understand it. Yeah, and... I went down and did exactly the same thing for the free skiing once that was on. And they were like, oh, no, we don't really have a riders meeting. We just look at it. <laughs> really? Yeah, it was the polar opposite. Right. There were nine judges down there for snowboarding. There were five for free skiing. And it was purely overall impression. Right. And the skiers were, if anything, going more mental on the slope style course than the snowboarders. It suited them. They could get across and use more stuff. And yeah, right. they had the loosest judging parameters. But So... Sean White then, you know, me and you have um, definitely debated that one over the years. So what, where did you stand after this then? Because, you know, there was the whole redemption narrative and, and what he did was amazing, but he still got loads of shit, didn't he? Let's be honest. I mean, I actually got asked to write a column for a for a website and I think that they sort of know I'll, I'll play devil's advocate for Sean White, you know, and, and the, he was like, can you write something in defense of Sean White? Because, you know, this is this is obviously something that's... And in the end, it got spiked because all that Me Too stuff came out and I was a bit like, I don't think this is very appropriate given what's going on. But my point is, there was like the whole debate again. You know, again, he, he was... He'd thrown down, won his third gold under the most pressure ever, you know, arguably the most progressive pipe run ever, but he's still getting shit. You know, like, well, I, I wrote a piece for Transworld and anyone who knows, reads any of my core stuff knows that I'm no Sean White fan. But the fact remains, he he's not the robot he was four, eight years ago at Vancouver when he won his last gold. I mean, that's a, that's quite a mad thing to say anyway. Eight years ago in snowboarding, like the guy's been golding for 12 years most people that's the length of most people's careers from like rookie to done and this kid's at the top whatever he does in his private life is his business but to turn up after what do you get 63 stitches in his nose i mean from his lip to the top of his nose i think he smashed his shoulder he whacked his head like he's taken some big hits and then a 19-year-old and a 22-year-old push him to the absolute limit and force him into a combination he's never landed properly before. And he does it. On the biggest stage with most of the world watching and he lands it going bigger than all of them. Yeah. That was, I don't care what you say, I mean, incredible athlete. And I got I got a brilliant comment on the end. Nick Hamilton sent me some comments. It's like, go and check out the Facebook comments on that article. And um, one guy said... Uh, I don't know what's more salty, the butthurt boys, uh, the butthurt Sean fans on here uh, who can't stand him being dissed or the taste of Sean's cum in Ed Lee's mouth. <laughs> <laughs> wow. It's like, oof, That's okay. punchy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought I had a few spicy comments about this thing. Jesus. But So what do you think it is? You know, what what is it that winds people up so much? Is it because he just doesn't look like he cares enough is it because he just looks like he's in it for himself yeah certainly for me i mean we we've had this debate but the the foundation of it for me 
is an argument that I saw in 2007 at the European Open when, I mean, I don't know exactly what was said. Sean came second to Kevin Pearce. There's a lot of chat that Sean said he didn't want to do back-to-back tens. Kevin said, well, enjoy yourself, go and do some big floaty sevens. And whatever the case, Sean did a, a beautiful, styly run, but it wasn't tech. Kevin did a tech run, one, and Sean refused to get on the podium. In the end, Jake Burton had to go down and beg him to get on the podium for the live TV. They were trying to get all of that off the ground at the time. And then uh, Sean must have been quite young at that time. And whatever it was, Drew Stevenson decided to take Sean to task. And I was outside the room and listened to the bollocking. But Sean wasn't taking any bollocking. Sean gave as good as he got from Drew. And they fell out. And from that point on, I think there was... Sean would turn up for the TTR events when he felt like it. But there was no real love there. And... I mean, it's it's you've got to cast your mind back a long way to the early two thousands when Sean first started winning. But he he had a what was at the time. I've, I remember writing about it and saying that it was a, the desire to win was seen as a, a vulgar one. Like snowboarders were out there having fun, pushing each other, but to actually want to win was a bit. Well, this is what I don't really get because, by all accounts, Scotty. You know, he's like one of the most competitive guys going. And, you know, there's all this... Was it Snowmass? He supposedly... Totally... Yuto Totsuka, the 16-year-old kid who didn't speak any English. Word has it. And none of them realise on the Eurosport coverage, there's no commentary. So you can hear all of the mics. And you hear him say to him, you beat me, I'm going to murder you. <laughs> really? <laughs> and the Japanese coach can that's, obviously understand it. Like Yuto's just a bit like, huh? Obviously like, oh, that, that tone of voice seemed a bit weird. But the Japanese coach proper double takes him like, what? Really? Right. Yeah. But that's what I mean. Like, but he, he's not getting anywhere near the same amount of shit. You know, like he's, he's. But Sean did it first. Yuri Podlachikov is out of the same... Like you, you could argue that the direction the sport's gone in, everyone has to be like that now. They, they have that, that ability, and it's no longer a vulgar impulse, but it's to the detriment of snowboarding, I think. But maybe you have to... Maybe that's the place you have to go to to win a pipe comp these days. I don't know. Well, I mean, they're just... They're just Sean set compa- that bar. They're competitive. Yeah, you don't <laughs> session with each other. You they build can, your own pipe. You, can't, you session on your own. You get as many laps as you can. Yeah, I just you can't do what they do without being very driven and very competitive. I mean, it's it's really hard well, and really dangerous. I had a mad conversation with Xavier Delarue the other day, where we were talking about doping. He lent me the um, the original. What's Lance Armstrong's teammate? Oh, Tyler Armstrong? Tyler Harding. Is it? No, no. Tyler Hamilton. Tyler Hamilton, that's Tyler Hamilton. Tyler Harding. And I was talking about that. I said, there's no way that you can have a, like that doping's ever going to make it into freestyle snowboarding. He looked at me in disbelief. And he said, you look at the, because his brother Polo is waiting to see if he'll get the medal off the Russian kid from Sochi. Right. Because I've said that kid was like the Russian kid was nothing. He was low 30s. Then suddenly come the games, he's got this enormous set of quads on him and a, the most powerful start in the game. He's first out of the gate. And he said like the kid was doping. So you're like, OK, this is like it's a thing. And then I carried that conversation on with a couple of other people. And they said, well, what if right now 
Red Gerard had a private park in his back garden. Marcus Cleveland essentially has a private park in Donbass that he can reshape all the time. And Hamish McKnight was saying, you need a private park to get the yeah, repetition Hamish of laps. Yeah, Hamish certainly believes that if you, you'll just need that so from now on. If, that, if we're just purely talking about repetition of laps, what if, stamina-wise, you can only do 20 laps a day and those last three or four you're tired and you're in danger of injuring yourself. Juice it up. Juice it up, <laughs> getting 25 laps, and you're in no danger of injuring yourself in the last five. That's quite a scary concept. Have you seen Icarus? Yes. Because isn't there a claim in that that there's no clean medal of the last X number of years, you know, in the summer games? I mean, it's not a conversation I feel particularly qualified to have. I'd just say what, no. watch that film, really, because it's uh, it's certainly an eye-opener op- eye on this subject. Well, he's, he's an absolute riot. If you haven't seen that, go and watch it, because he's, yeah, he's one of the most entertaining men. Definitely self-medicating. <laughs> <laughs> so, you, you know, you, it sounds like you think snowboarding kind of came of age a little bit on, on this stage then for, in, for a variety of ways, you know, whether it's, the fact that you're all in the room presenting the public face of snowboarding on all these networks, you know, like you've explained yourself and your peers, the stand, you know, like I was saying, the kind of like it being the top ticket store of the Olympics, you know, do, do you feel from the other side that the authorities involved, FIS, the IOC, do, do you think there's an acceptance? Do you think they share that viewpoint? Was that just no, something? I mean, there was, there were a couple of comments made, weren't there, where no one forced the women to go. Uh, I think was one of the FIS representatives. It's very difficult because to most snowboarders, they're very f- the I- both the IOC and the FIS are faceless. There's no dialogue. And it's one of the big, I think, well, it's the first step that snowboarding has to take is to start, somehow start a dialogue. There's some, you go and talk to anyone, there's Robbie Marese, the I think he's the snowboard director for the FIS. Great guy. Like works tirelessly to try and bridge that gap, but he can't do it on his own. And the, he's as hard as he works. You get the feeling like there's a step above him at the FIS who just, they're not interested. I'm sure I talked about this before, having been to the Alpine World Champs and the FIS Freestyle World Champs, they're just poles apart for investment. Yeah, And the FIS would probably say, well, there's no one interested in investing in the freestyle side of things it certainly felt like it was the the back end of some like mixed sponsorship deal that they'd sold to audi but like you had you you can point the finger back at them and say well look how many the people the lights are on and shining brightly for the masses at the olympics why can you not sell that year in year out the ball's in their court to try and do it but i don't know they I think they reacted and they they showed the way they rescheduled the women's big air to avoid the wind and really they were very proactive with that. A lot of people saw a lot of people pointed the finger and said you changed the slalom, you moved the alpine event calendar around. They didn't. They cancelled alpine other alpine events and prioritized which ones they were going to keep. And it's a bit like comparing swimming with sailing. You've only got one discipline in sailing. You've got 12 in swimming so all of those skiers have lots of chances at those medals and I suppose it is changing in snowboarding you've got big air and slope style now a lot of those women got redemption coming back but did you have sympathy for the women's 
slope style. Well, I tried really, I wrote a Transworld piece on that and tried really hard to get to the bottom of it. I do, but I think it's symptomatic of what we talked about earlier, the fact that if you want that Olympic slice of pie, then that's what you accept going with it. Surfing, it's going to be incredible watching surfing in two years' time in Tokyo because how are you going to run? Literally, they're going to give them a three-hour window to run the surfing. Well, what's really interesting, I think, at the minute is you've got the next wave of of action sports coming through that are going to go through the same growing pains that snowboarding has over 20 years. And, and you know, like you say, you might say snowboarding's come of age, if you like. Obviously, we've discussed the many, many flaws with the current situation. But in terms of actually delivering a an event that represents the, the, the top end of competitive snowboarding, that, that is happening now at the Olympic Games, which wasn't the case in 98. And it's taken 20 years, you know, and if you look at GB Park and Pipe, it's taken 20 years to even understand and create a process that's led to medals, you know, like consistent, like Jenny and then Billy, you know, that's taken literally 20 years of like all Leslie's experience for what she went through as an athlete and, you know, and, and understanding how to, you know, bridge that gap basically between mainstream sport and culture and action sports culture. And they're all going through it now. I mean, in the Sean Coxie thing I did, we discussed that quite a lot like the compromises that climbing are already having to make you just talked about surfing bmx i mean have you seen what's going on in bmx we like matt hoffman calling for a boycott you know like everyone in bmx like completely at odds over how to handle it and you could argue bmx especially is the most vulnerable because there is so little money in the like domestically in the sport so if you're a rider and you're good, it's that's a massive carrot. It's it's something huge that someone like Hoffman, who's made millions off computer games and big endorsement deals, can easily say. But it's going to be a hard sell to the 16, 17-year-olds who are... I mean, it's got some... It's so core. Cool. I get to go to Simple Session once a year and watch that go down. And I mean, I don't know if you watched street bmx or park bmx recently it's just insane the height the technicality the the level of risk involved in that at the moment but you go and talk i spoke to wingy i've i've a few of the skaters have come to me and started kind of knocking around whether it's on the broadcast side of things or whether it's on the organizational side from of things. the uk yeah okay that's interesting like, right what and so who's, who have you been speaking to there then um wingy Okay. Stephen Wilkinson. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Churchill. Um, Are they involved with Skateboard England then? Yeah. Because Lucy's involved with that as well, right? Lucy Adams. Yeah. And they... It's yeah, it's really it's really difficult because I want to say to them, like, this is really hot potato. But skateboarding's been gearing up for this for a long time. I, I almost think skating's in the best place, really. Well, to... if they take the Vans Park series and Street League as their qualifiers, yeah. they're in a great place. And if they just basically use the existing formats that work really, really well. They've they've arguably got the best. Yeah, Surfing's in a really odd place because it looks like the ISF will qualify surfing rather than the WSL. I didn't know that. Right. I think. Right. I mean, surfing just is one of those examples where for me just see how tone deaf the ioc is because you know what's one of the biggest issues they've got is legacy isn't it you know and there's just there's literally an open goal there like create a wave pool whatever you think of them in each venue did you did you watch the founders cup 
I didn't watch the Founders Cup. I was actually going to ask you about that because I'd be interested to get your views on that. I, d- I find it a bit dull, I must say. But um, but I don't really watch surf comps anyway. I find surf comps generally quite dull. I watch the highlights. but I, don't, oh, I-, see, I love... There's no way that you can take... And this is the WSL's real strength. There's no way you can put Chopo or Pipe in the Olympics. They're going to be their own thing forever. And I, I love watching those. But... I mean, you can see the wave pool now is really rough diamond, but you can see in three years the, where the Brazilians are at now, the consistency they've got in a normal beach break. What I saw at the Founders' Cup, once they start, the, it's going to blow board design. It's going to be a different sport. It's going to be what cable wake uh, lakes are to standard wakeboarding it's going to be be nuts they've completely changed the boards they're using there'll be skim boards or almost skateboards i reckon when you know the power source is there you know exactly what that wave's going to do but like you say it's it's perfect legacy build yeah, a wave just, pool in the middle of tokyo i just think if you could you know you you've got a problem if you're going to try and put surf in the olympics you've got a problem like where you can hold it you know like and it just seems a bit of an easy out. You know, like I said, no matter what you think of the ethics of, of wave pools, no matter what you think about the type of surfer and the type of performance surfing it produces, and God knows a lot of people don't agree with that. Um, it just seems really obvious way of going, but no, they've decided they're going to do it in, you know, potentially very poor waves. Like Chiba in the middle of summer. Which just could be a disaster, you know, and why, why put yourself in that position? <laughs> yeah, when... And all of the good surfers can't showcase what they do. It comes down to, if you're in knee-high slop, who's the lightest? Yeah, I mean, it could be really awful, couldn't it? You know, And you could just mitigate that risk, and that's what I mean. You just, they've, not, they've clearly not learned. You know, They've clearly not looked at the situation with snowboarding and, and, and gone, all oh, right, well, yeah, that, that was a bit of a shit show, actually, thinking about that. What could we do to kind of sort that out? They, they got there well, in the end, we, you know. Uh, this is it. They all they see fundamentally in the directive since Barcelona in 1992 has been find a broader audience because pre 92 it was all about the US TV rights and it still is to a degree. Like that was why pipe happened during the day, why big air happened during the day in Korea because it was perfect tea time viewing in the states. The both events should have happened at night. They look great under lights, but we got that's the other crazy thing: three Asian games in a row. Korea, Tokyo, Beijing. And that works perfectly for the US. But going back to it, 1992 was when they said, get us a younger audience, get us get us a broader global audience. And that's all these sports are getting hauled in for. Yeah, Snowboarding fitted very nicely under the FIS's banner. So boom, we'll bring that one in. It's worked out really nicely, for them at least. So did you feel when you were working this year that you you know going back to what you're saying like your first games you you were a bit worried for a variety of reasons did you feel this year that you you know you pulled it off you, you'd earn your place at the table as it were personally yeah yeah i think so i've it's what's really interesting for me my broadcasting career started in kind of 2001 2002 so then there's four or five year gap before my first Olympics in 2006 but they for me personally they mark sort of career developments and I can see how I've matured and changed and in some cases like it's a lot straighter a lot less fun but I think for the sport 
the, my ability to build narratives, follow stories and create the drama within the event has, has improved. And having someone like Tim there, which who I've had for the last two games, is just gold for me. He was he was brilliant. I thought he's unbelievable. I thought he was. I I, I scripted the the lines. None, not not at all. Really? Yeah. So I mean, there's just... a couple I've heard before of the best ones. He's a he's a cat. He's a cat in human skin. <laughs> that kind of stuff. But there, he's he's always had that in him, Tim, hasn't he? He's always he's always sort of said those lines, hasn't he? That you know. Sometimes the hit rate can be <laughs> quite quite hit and miss, but he was he, he was on, wasn't he? Oh. It was hilarious. I mean, I saw like Catelyn Moran tweeting, you know, saying, "Is anyone watching the snowboarding? Who the fuck are these two? Sort of thing, you know. And it's, it was, he's just hilarious, and I have to check myself regularly because I and remember like you can't do that. Well, you're the straight Don't man, try. which is unusual. <laughs> <laughs> but I love it. The number of times I'm on on the cough button just rolled up in the corner. Yeah, it was it was really good. It was really funny. Yeah. Did he did he come away with it with more confidence? He's a, he's a sensitive lad, isn't he? You know. Uh, yeah, he's. He must have loved it. He must have been really stoked. I mean, Tim's. He's. There is no one better in the world at doing what he does. And what's amazing is that the the incredible thing about him. When I got tasked with free skiing was coming in in 2014, and the BBC said to me, "I said I can't do it. I need someone else in there." So I went to Pat Sharples and said, "Okay, Paddy Graham." And he said, "I'm I'm planning on taking Paddy." I said, "Okay, who's the best free ski MC in the in?" britain and it's like tim ward <laughs> i thought wow okay i'm allowed to take a snowboarder and sure enough tim can i go really in depth with the people but tim's ability to call tricks i've always been able to do pipe but slope i struggle with especially rails and tim is he's got those lines coming out but then he's just generating the the spins this year for the first time is when i felt like i'd caught up again i could call 12s, 14s and 16s really quickly for the first time. The Cab 1800 from Max Parra took me a few looks. Like, what's yeah, going on there? I, I always watch it thinking, Christ, I don't have to do that. <laughs> <laughs> it's, when you watch enough of it, it's bizarre. You actually, you can see it on the takeoff, how much they're grabbing, like the rip on the takeoff. Yeah. And one of my favourite parts of the games, I'd love to see if you can find a meme of it, is um, Chris Corning when he was up on top of the medium-sized air and he was thinking about the quad and he visualises it and it looks like he's having some kind of <laughs> terrible muscle twitching, like, <laughs> just shaking his head to the left, like, one, two, three, four. Jesus. Oh, and it's oh, it's hilarious watching him visualise the quad court. You're like, oh, God. Did really? you have a, a favourite moment then of the whole thing? Pretty easy one. Yeah. Billy Morgan. There is an obvious one, isn't there? Yeah, Billy Morgan... Winning that, it's. I'm not 100% sold on that format. I thought it worked brilliantly for the women. It's really, really good. But for the men, when there's so much at stake, and we just, I felt we got to see some great, great riding. But I almost preferred the qualifiers to the finals. Um, I, I'm not sure that that three well, it did jumps. Come, it did come down to that quite reductive, like well. If he doesn't land, then he's one sort of vibe, and yep. everyone was just trying to land the jump to get the. Yeah, it's it. it I, I mean, it, it on was, its it day, was, it was dramatic. I mean, it was. I think the X Games format is the best, where you've just got thirty minutes and they're all just lapping. 
So you get it'd be you hard get, for a mainstream audience out there, wouldn't it? You know, to to sort of Well, it doesn't hold them in the same way. You know, there is something Best, best two jumps. Gladiatorial about this guy needs to land or else he's not going to win, sort of thing. At least, you know, yeah. people can get that, can't they? And I suppose we, if you want to look at it, we got it in half pipe. We didn't quite get it in big air. So, no, but we got a great result from exactly. the UK's point of view. Yeah. So, how was that night? Oh, it was pretty good fun. <laughs> <laughs> But that must have been a real nice... Because there's a good camaraderie, isn't there, between all the Brits, whether you're working in the media or whether you're riding or coaches, whatever. There's, I tell you what... So it must have been a nice... There was big camaraderie between everyone. Like I turned up to that, no idea. It was held down in the Red Bull house. Like, all of the countries and brands. That's the weird thing about the Olympics. They all have a house. Yeah. You can go and eat, like, fondue in the French house You can or the Swiss house. You can go and have... Like, what do Austrians usually... But, yeah, they all have their little thing. There's meatballs in the Swedish house. But Red Bull had a house. And it was more like a nightclub in the bottom of this arcade. And we went down there and everyone was in there. Right. And it was kind of... I'm trying to think who else was on the podium from that day because it was just men's big air. Seb Toots. There was Seb Toots, who's Red Bull. Billy, who's Red Bull. And it was bronze. It wasn't Matson, was it? Oh, Carl Mack. So um, everybody, everybody headed to yeah. the to the Red Bull house. Yeah, and it was it was just a massive, um, kind of international. It was the one party where I saw everyone from snowboarding. Well, I mean that's that's the snowboarding event thing, though, isn't it? As well, you know, like you go to any of those events as we've done over the years, and there's a big party on the last night, and everybody just piles in don't they i didn't go to it but one of the best stories i heard was and it was one of the reasons i was so disappointed for anagasa because for me one of the ele big elephants in the room of european snowboarding is the fact that austria post the aesthetica crew just don't produce any snowboarders like Vernie stock like elias elhart is german okay he plies his trade there gigi but like we should, there should be a huge number of Austrian riders, and they're just literally we're talking about a handful. And so to have someone like Anagasa medal and then get, I think uh, Hirscher took a silver or it might have been a gold. Like Marcel Hirscher, like greatest of all time competitive alpine skier, and he got pushed to one side for Gasa. And they're they're not that progressive. I think in a lot of ways the like, on snow Austrian community, but I really hope that 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 Gasser's big air gold can affect some change there long term, and we see interesting a bit point. more snowboarding. It's interesting point because yeah, that I guess it's almost a bit of a golden generation, wasn't it, with all the older Stetica boys? Well, well still Volinovel, so like um, Steve Gruber, Beckner, like there's some of the some of the world's best, not Europe's best. Yeah, God, Grieber's one, one of the best people I've ever been riding with. I mean, lucky enough to have a powder day with him in Meyerhofen a few years ago. It's one of them where you're like, wow, okay. Well, they're still not, <laughs> still, if you you're go hunting good. around, there'll still be a bit of Steve Gruber footage from a wind, like here or there, a day he might go out, and it's still oh, big, he was, he was big amazing. Jump. Those he was, boys aren't shy. No, and he was really generous as well. He was a really generous lad to go riding with. I've always found that with that lot. They're all, you're like, 
Beckner's the same, isn't it? If you go riding with them, they just they just want everyone to be stoked, don't they? You know, they just they're just like, wait, come on, let's you know, it's really fun, isn't it? It's really accessible, which is really nice considering you know how progressive and how good they are, basically. I've fu- I've found exactly the same thing out of the current crop of Frenchies, though, who I'd liken to that Aesthetica crew, right? The sort of Victor Davier, Arthur Longo, uh, Victor Delarue, like. You look at the level of French snowboarding. They're another one. They've got hardly any competitive riders, and yet they've got probably the best all-round riders in the world right now. I mean, that who you went to Israel with? Davier, yeah, right. Unbelievable. That was that this year, last January, two thousand and seventeen. Okay, he has got one of. There's very few people who can make snowboarding look as graceful in the flesh as he does. Some people can do it on film. I think, but it was his was just the hit rate, the consistency, and the style were phenomenal. Pal trip to uh, Israel. It's not your normal assignment. How was that? That was pretty wild. It was. It was one of those lovely two days beforehand. Can you go? Yes, I'll move heaven and earth. And I looked, and there was a huge storm coming in, and it was hysterical. The guy who picked us up from the airport um, looked like. I'm not joking, he was an absolute dead ringer for a cross. He looked like Ron Jeremy and Michael <laughs> Bolton's love child, <laughs> Roy Ittleson. And he runs, him and his dad run one of the big surf snow stores in Tel Aviv. And he just blasted us around Tel Aviv. And it, it's a reality down there. We had good surf and the same storm that brought in this surf was dumping snow up north. Then we went up to Mount Hermon, which is on the literally at the center of the axis of evil you've got hezbollah uh controlling the lebanese lebanon side of the border you've got uh syria axis of evil showing your age there aren't you yeah <laughs> and then axis of powder that's what we called those articles wasn't it when we did all the iran yeah. and lebanon and all that stuff yeah it was yeah it was pretty wild you go up there and roy'd be like don't go over there that's syria they will shoot you if you go there wow but we it was it, we had two days up there and it was proper proper powder. Is it right by the Med? Yeah, you're it's on the eastern shore of the Med, so it's got the biggest. The, rain, fetch. the range, I mean, though, is like is right by the Med. That's the, it runs because Lebanon. Call it a range. It's not really. A, it must be the same mountains as Lebanon. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because because Le- Lebanon's like an hour inland, isn't it? What from, sits in the southeastern corner of Lebanon is what. Yeah, it must flows be the same over. Little, little range for sure. Yeah, but they interesting idea they get four to five storms a winter and right. you start riding on the end of the second storm may but more likely the third storm yeah and they said we've dropped from a definite five storms to like in the worst winters two or three really so they're yeah another set of resorts i heard a statistic the other day that was being peddled in france they reckon in 20 years there'll only be five uh full season resorts left in france Jesus. Yeah. Teen does out Valteron. Team Val is air. Valteron does out and what's the other one? Really high up. I can't remember. Might be in Sham. It's not a lot anyway. No. It's really, really light. Like, okay. Wow. I still want to go to Greece. You've been to Greece? Not in winter. Because that's one of those trips that pops up. I remember the first time I saw people riding there was like that Jamie Lynn, Dale Rayberg trip in Transworld. Do you remember that one? It's I know exa- but it's the same Scalp's been on it as well. Yeah, there's a few people have been over the years. Freddie Kalbermatten and Nicholas Muller went at one stage. It's 
you've you it's surgical strike stuff you've yeah, got to you be got, in europe you've got to get watching. it right yeah, yeah. it's but i think on its day it's great and you know you're in greece go riding it's got to be worth a look on it definitely well i mean you know it brings us to your winter really because as anyone that follows you on social media will know you've had quite a good winter eh? it's been in terms of if you looked at it just in terms of snowfall I started riding on November the 4th. What are we on now? May the 9th. I stopped riding on May the 4th. So is this... Six months. 20, 20 years since you've seen one like this? In terms of snowfall, probably, yeah. I missed 98.99, which I think would be most people's. Yeah, you had your knee, didn't you? Yeah. But I've watched that come that, down. But interestingly, I lost uh, three friends that winter. And yeah, well, we lived together, didn't we? So yeah, this winter was on a par with that. I don't know whether it. I th- maybe it was just difficult to remember. I wasn't anywhere near as aware, but I've spoken to a lot of guides throughout the course of this winter, and they all talked about seeing things, snow behaviour in the pack that they'd never seen before. Really, south facing slopes avalanching at 6 30 in the morning wow. with no humans around they were just I, we turned up in one resort and the guides were pale they this slide had gone down to dirt across a piece first thing in the morning and they were like well if it can go at 6 30 this stuff can go at any time during yeah, the yeah. day and they wow. were really really frightened they were they looked confused yeah right and they talked about snowpacks and behaviors that they've never seen and that came off the back of neil mcnab's decision to move away from sham and i think he'd got a lot of other things going on but that was certainly uh an element of it for him that he would he was seeing slides where he'd never seen them before in Sham. Really? yeah he's a very requested guest neil need to need to get he'll be listening actually i reckon need to uh get him on air oh i'd love to hear his side of that story because he's someone who's got i'd say of um, anyone in europe probably one of the most unique views oh yeah and like like me and james said pioneer he's he there's a statistic that if you ever get him on i'd love to hear his idea on it the uh mortality rate of guides in chamonix someone told me about that recently that it's something insane like five percent mate retirement age wow oh, that seems fairly mental yeah, yeah. that's it. well that was it i couldn't believe it but right i'd love to know so what, what were some of the memorable days you had this year then i've been in Verbier for three years and uh, the two lads who live underneath me uh, work in Shawfoot, this shop that burned down at the start of the season and their insurance covered their wages. They just had to gut the shop and get it ready so they could do that at any time of day. And they're both really good skiers and they were out ready to go whenever they wanted. And I've been exploring that mountain, but being able to go out fairly regularly and with people who really know it i kind of felt like i got on the bottom rung of the um back country there because if you go somewhere like the espaskili or the three valleys you can see most of the right yeah but verbier's life's more work verbier in it really yeah it's it's like chamonix you need to know where you're going yeah and i've had a few i started to get there winter before last but just started to travel a bit more further afield and really look at some of the bigger lines and yeah backside of Montfort yeah there's a lot of stuff off there and going down like knee deep plus snow 
down 50 degree shoots then little hikes into big three kilometer 30 degree bowls and just banging around i found a couple of big cliffs that i sniffed around and they were yeah it was lovely there's there's so many good people there but a lot of good people to ride with and that was it just literally calling people up and going okay we're dropping cliffs today we're doing some big lines and one of the one of the lovely things i went out there's a lot of people i ride with where i'll defer to their superior knowledge and um avalanche awareness but i do a couple of big days myself and especially when i take sean out i'm in charge i'm making the calls and there are a couple of times where sean's my wife and we i get into stuff and i was like this is gonna go so cut it and sure enough it goes and then you come back across and i'm working like if if two parents are out at the same time doing stuff like that there's a lot of responsibility you can't nothing can go wrong and so it's making cuts and i i just made good choices and i'm not arrogant enough to think that i know you're only one bad choice away from going but two or three days i consecutively made really good choices and was able to secure runs that i spotted and i was like okay it's it's has all sunk in i'm doing the right thing at least for now yeah and the kids are shredding pretty scary yeah i mean getting good well the boy is nine and he's he just can't keep up so he's basically learned to straight line everything (laughs) (laughs) it's terrifying watching him just ball up and get on the back foot for some big big uh descents mogul fields or powder fields I left him with John O'Verity for about 20 minutes and that ended in a solid 20-foot cliff. Fair. I was like, he, Jono, he, he doesn't know what it's <laughs> like to tomahawk off a cliff this big. <laughs> well, yeah, but he'll have a go though. Yeah. Sadly, yeah. He's got my Kodak Courage gene. And you guys have been going to the Brits every year, haven't you, and, and really digging that? I I think, I mean, I've I went to so many as a young snowboarder but i enjoy it more as a family now it's incredible yeah i think that that's the future of the brits if you ask me i think you know seeing it as like the 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 sort of proving ground for for the the, the kids really isn't it you know definitely and there's but there's really really like there's really good sense of community because you've also got like billy jenny yeah uh, katie wasn't there but rowan uh woodsy all of the skiers are there as yeah, well yeah. and it's it, that was a bit of a homecoming for them yeah definitely to be able to come back relax just slay larks park for a week yeah it's a great vibe on the hill it's so I fun it. i really really love that and being being able to show my kids that we had one day this year so you had the rothneys craig and his wife and their two girls, Emily and Rosie, and they, they're from the Lect. You've got the Brooks, Mia Brooks, won the World Rookie Fest. My my kids think that you've got to be that good to be good at snowboarding. <laughs> they don't think they're that good, which is pretty funny. Um, the Blackwells, like, there was so many families, five or six families all get together, and you go out for three or four laps, and there's 40 of you. It's hilarious. And watching my kids, the the switch flick, 
ah, this is it. When when it's not about going with your mum and dad, yeah. they're suddenly out with all of their mates trying to one-up each other off everything. Yeah. And that mountain's so insane. They, you do a bit of park, then you do a bank slalom, then you do some side hits, then you get down the bottom and it's just slushy sprays everywhere. And then you can go to a completely different part. There might be a bit of powder left and you're just rampaging round as a group of 40. Yeah. Amazing. Oh, Absolutely it's amazing. Brilliant. Yeah. So what is, what's next? What's the plan? You just were saying you year three in Verbier. So you going to stay? If it's up to me, I would. 100%. I think personally and professionally, it's about as good as life's ever been for me. But it is a bubble. And I'm not entirely sure. I have... I have to concede that it's possibly not the best place to bring up teenagers. So, uh, my wife, Sean's Kiwi, so we'll almost certainly head back to uh, New Zealand. And the plan is to go to Wanaka. Yeah, because you're on the North Island right now. Yep. We're, well, we were when we were there. Yeah, but that's where you've got a home. And... Yeah. And the kids, the interesting, I mean, I've asked them, and I think... To any of us, the idea of living in Verbier is a dream, but to kids who are living their parents' dream, it's they have no context as to how special that place is. So my hope is that we'll leave. They'll go, oh, my God, that was incredible. We should go back. Yeah, but Wanaka's not exactly a bad replacement. Definitely not on a personal level. Much harder to... Uh, tie things up professionally I think because you're you are at the edge of the world there so I mean New Zealand definitely gets its fair share of visitors winter and summer um, from the action sports world so you do still get to see a lot of people but one of the big I suppose my big reservation is the fact that I love my work and like a lot of people who enjoy their work and are successful it becomes a part of your identity and my fear now is that I'm not getting on another plane. Pre When we lived there three years ago, I travelled a lot. And on an environmental level, I can't really justify it. I'd like to think that I try and do my bit for the environment. And I just can't go and get on seven Europe returns a year. But moreover, I was it really wiped me out. I was really tired. I don't think I was particularly pleasant to be around when I was jet lagged at each end of those. And if you're coming and going every two or three weeks, that's a week of the time your back is kind of ruined while you get used to it and then get nervous about going again. It was it was exhausting. And I'm just not going to do that again. Yeah, I mean, so. it's not a very sustainable lifestyle. I'm, I'm amazed you've managed to keep it up for yeah. so long, really. Yeah, it's, so... The question is finding things to do, but um, you are but you are worried about it. Then you you are worried. You know you, what you said earlier was revealing because you said your work's tied up to your identity. I mean, for someone that works as hard as you do, I think that's that's kind of something I always thought. But you are worried that you might not perhaps get the opportunities that you've got now, or it might not be as good as what you've got now. Yeah, that's all it is. I how, know how I'll be that, fine. I how don't does that square with Eddie? What was it you said? Sean calls it Eddie Eddie World. Ed's World. There are definitely things I want to do. Um, I have a really close working relationship, always have had with uh, Mons Royale and Hamish Ackland there. And there's 
definitely there's opportunities to do stuff there but it's there's there's a lot of different ways to do it I, but yeah I want to try and answer that question but I'm not 100% sure how I feel about it yet I haven't I haven't reconciled it in my own mind mainly I think because we've kind of we've made a plan to come to back to Europe for one winter and we've just kept extending that by one more wafer thin season <laughs> for sort of feels like seven or eight times so we've made this one definitive but i said to the kids the other day if you if you had a choice what would you do and they i expected suki to say i'd like to go back but they both said we want to go back i thought okay cool let's do this yeah and it's, can't argue with that it's not forever but the harbinger of brexit changes the landscape of for people like us massively I, and i respect anyone for their decisions as to why they voted but i yeah i struggle with it because it's yeah it closes your opportunities as a brit your your chances like i just snuck in to get a permit to live in switzerland to live and work in switzerland before they started because switzerland are notoriously reciprocal in, with their visas and working systems so a lot of people just won't be able to go right that's one country you strike off the list and that's just tragic as far as i'm concerned so you probably a bit of a new chapter by the sounds of it for for the foreseeable you still going to do ski sunday yeah i'll keep my hand in there that's it's an easy one and it's really compact and i i love doing it it's one of the things i'm most proud of as well the way that role's developed it sort of 10 years ago it was very boyish like lad kind of testosterone and adrenaline but it's changed a lot and there are some i'm really i'm always really excited about the stories the mountains turn up and the more interesting ones you do the more interesting ones seem to turn up so the one we did this winter just gone with chase the uh aspergic girl with hypermobility disorder who she was hypersensitive to sound so everything's against her like the idea of her actually learning to snowboard just seems ludicrous she dislocates and subluxes joints on a daily basis wow. in everyday tasks and yet snow deadened sound and she found it was the most the time she was most at peace it's snowed twice in Basingstoke but she wrote to me and said look I love it against the odds I've learned at Hemel what are my chances of getting to the mountains and i showed it to the series producer at Ski Sunday and said, you up for this? He was like, yeah, okay, we'll try it. Brilliant. So we took her out that's on That's how that came about. And, yeah. Wow, that's great. And it was, yeah, it was amazing. Amazing, like phenomenal. The battle she overcame, just small things. The instructor, when we turned up, just touched her to check that she had padding on and she nearly smashed him. Like you touch an autistic person and they're going to lose their... Yeah. And she was just distraught. She was like, this guy should know this. But it was things that I'd never think about. Yeah. But watching her get it. And by the end of the week, she was flying. She had her confidence up and she was, the routine was strong enough for her. Yeah. But it took her, I spoke to her for six, eight weeks afterwards and she was wiped out. Really? A week cost her two months. Wow. Blimey. Yeah, it was a great one that I'll link to that. That was, a, I mean, it's still online, isn't it? Yeah, I've got a copy of it. I could, yeah, yeah, give it to you. 
So what? Don't tell I, anyone at the BBC. <laughs> <laughs> what? Well, one of the questions I wanted to ask you was um, about like what kind of career ambitions you've got left, because you've been doing what, what? That's your third Olympics, isn't it? And you? No, fifth. Is that your fifth? Yeah, if you count the fourth winters. Oh, I keep forgetting London. Then the London one as well. Yeah. I'm fascinated by this because I don't know. Uh, there's so many things going on in the world of broadcasting and media. The BBC's definitely given me enough profile to survive what I would see as the first wave of cull that's been initiated by social media. But not many people want to watch someone like me the commentary is almost more valuable to me at the moment than the presenting because very few people will sit down and sit through a 20 minute pre-show on something i believe most people just want to see highlights um i could be really wrong with that but i watch the way people consume things and i watch everything that i see produced that i'm a part of away from broadcast and it's six to ten second minute pieces yeah it's that landscape is changing so quickly and certainly i've tried for 10 years to jump to mainstream tv and i kind of feel like i've that's not going to happen i'm not sad about it i've tried had a bit of success but other than ski sunday i don't think there's an appetite like you get shows like sky are doing this revolution at the moment sort of border cross on so what line, Tim's doing? Yeah, inline BMX, skateboarding, all on the same course. Just a bit of a mess, and it might work for a mainstream audience. But like as you said, like it shows just how tone deaf the mainstream media are to what's actually happening in action sports and what you could do. That they perennially put out these kind of pinball meets action sports, and they'll they'll sink millions into those. And I just. I actually have enjoyed re-immersing myself in the last three or four years in action sports. But I've been allowed to do that because of Red Bull TV. Yeah. And that is, I think they're pulling back a little bit now. So the I know the mountain bike with Rob Warner's cranking for them. But for for the stuff I've been on, it's, it's disappearing a bit. So um, that's why it's quite timely, going back to NZ. It might be time for a new chapter anyway. Yeah. I mean, it might stick around, might happen, you never know, but I'm not, I'm not sitting around, I don't want to be that person who sits around, waits, and is just suddenly, is, uh, monkey tennis? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Waiting for the call from Tony Hares. <laughs> yeah. Um, so what, what are you digging right now? What? What stuff are you enjoying right now? Because you're, you know, you're an avid consumer, aren't you? You like, you know, you you keep up to date. Yeah, I'm getting last three years. I've got really into mountain biking, just because I live in the mountains and it was the logical thing to do in summer. But it's not. There's pockets of media that are working there, but I don't find it. For, it's a genre that I think could be massively improved in terms of the production and the ideas. You've got so much at your disposal there. Just in terms of a colour palette even, if you come from something like snowboarding where you're like blue, blue white, white. 
then you look at mountain biking, you think, oh my goodness. And the stories out there as well, the things people are doing, there's way more participants, way more different cultural interpretations of it. Suffers from the same thing financially as snowboarding, where it's essentially a rich person sport yeah. to a degree. But, um, I, yeah, skateboarding and surfing, which are usually, certainly when I was living in New Zealand, were really strong parts of what I was doing, have, have backed off a little bit. I still love surfing and I... I find there's something very classic about it. I follow Surfer's Journal on Instagram and the posts are so few and far between and yet they stand out like nothing else. They are, every single one of those is like a beacon, I find, in a morass of shit, largely. Like, you've got all of the people, your mates that you follow and then you've got, I have like a lot of businesses or interests that I... I follow along and it's quite something for something as old school as surfers journal to stand out like that yeah i love it brilliant like the they're posting i suppose the cream of the crop in terms of photos so maybe a lesson to be learned there yeah are you, you are you sort of massively on social are you sort of dip a toe in don't you last two months the way i've used it is to just for the work that i do and trying not to use it for personal. I found myself sort of just proud dadding last summer and just thought, nah, this has <laughs> got to stop. But the I found it, I find it horrifically addictive. Yeah. Well, and it is that. Yeah. I, I've got to, I'll check myself. Winter's done now. I can take a break and relax. And yeah. I'm going to wean myself off it. So what's the plan for the summer? Um... I'm going to relive a uh, a childhood dream. I come from a sailing family and best holiday I ever went on was uh, three families all rented boats and went around the Ionian. Oh, wow. And my kids are at exactly the same age now. Oh, that's nice. That's a nice so thing to do. I'm going to go and do that and it's the first time I'm a blagger at heart. It's the first time I'll, I'll have had a holiday I think with the kids and the family where there's no work or sort of little right. sideline. There's no angle. <laughs> yeah. There's no angle to work. <laughs> I'm gonna go for two weeks and do nothing. Great. Oh wow that sounds amazing. Yeah. So you're gonna go and do that? It's I I was talking to someone the other day and Greece can have a reputation for being a bit dry and barren, but the West Coast is so lush and green. It's So where are you gonna go? Uh the Ionian. You sail around there. You've got your route. Yeah. I think I have, but I'm flexible. Two weeks of moseying around. <laughs> Is that will that be the first time you've really spent time on the boat since you did your classic kind of summer seasons? Because that was when I first met you. That was like you were paying for all your seasons, wasn't it? Basically going and doing the windsurf instructing and yacht delivery. Yeah. So is that where you learned to? Well, so you yeah we, we no, talked I about. I grew it. up. Yeah, my mum and dad you grew up with it, didn't you? Yeah. Granddad had um, designed, helped design the yacht, the Essex one design or es no estuary one design. Uh, it was it was the what's it? It's not the Admiral. It's the what is it? Commodore of the Essex Yacht Club, right? <laughs> but he was he was a um, science teacher. It wasn't any. It sounds like a big title, but he was just an uber passionate, right? Uh, ocean master, and he loved it. He just we'd get taken on the boat as one of four kids. One of the biggest treats we ever got as kids was being taken on the boat on your own for a week with my grandparents. Really? And that was good. Oh, times. wow, that sounds yeah. amazing. 
Yeah, not sharing attention with anyone else. He just he had he had this because he was a science professor. He'd got this mackerel board, so he designed this kind of it was a, a square of plywood, but he designed it so that it would sink itself, and then if anything bit on the hook, it would turn itself over and drag them to the top. So you could go through a shoal of mackerel, and it was literally as quickly as you could haul it in. Wow! You could get your dinner. Was it him that also had the electrocution machine? <laughs> <laughs> he was uh one of the parents had come in and said uh thought you'd know what this was alf and um it was a victorian electric shock box right. so he used to rig it up to a truck battery big 16 volt thing and then electrocute the family at christmas <laughs> yeah well, i think i've had a go on it <laughs> at some point <laughs> he used to claim that it would uh, make you virile i right. remember him telling me that it'd give me a great erection when i was about 11 <laughs> horrified and just what you want to hear yeah okay my older brother and i used to get it sneak it out whenever he went out right we really electrocuted each other quite badly (laughs) (laughs) explains a lot (laughs) yeah he was is a very very inspirational man knew how to have fun he had a poster on his wall that said um uh work is for people who never learn to sail and I remember applying that same phrase to most things I tried. What, what have you got written on your skateboard right now? There's something, it's a similar sentiment, isn't it? Yeah, it's, well, no, that's a Keith Richards one. But it's um, about growing old and, you yeah. know. Um, no one ever grows up. Uh, the only time you ever grow up is when you croak. Yeah, I did, that, I did see a little reminder every time you go skating. Yeah, yeah, it's exactly that. And I fit skateboarding of all of them is the hardest, the most brutal but the, arguably the most rewarding for that. And I love it. Like that idea that, okay, go on, get yourself out there. We went for a skate this morning. And yeah, and I ate shit. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm really feeling it. But no, it's good. It's, it's, I kind of enjoyed it as well, though. It's like a good, good, honest slam, you know what I mean? Just like proper like, oh yeah, fuck, that hurts. I truly believe in but, that. I'd... But you're fine, you know what I mean? Just get up and it's like, oh, it's all right. Well, there's, there is a worry there that we're getting that old that you can't actually feel the pain properly. You might have done some serious damage and not know. I, d- I definitely did go like, oh, that really hurt. But then, you know, it's just one of them, minutes. But it's, it's what Paddy Graham was talking about in the, the podcast the other week. It's you've got to go out and scare yourself. You've got to. You've got, whether it's in a professional capacity or physical, I love doing it physically. And I mean, that sensation of really scaring yourself yeah and if it goes wrong okay it goes wrong you deal with it yeah i had a good surf through the week actually where i had one of those moments where it, it just for down here it got i mean it wasn't scary but it suddenly got bigger you know so you had to like recalibrate your approach you know it was like oh okay and yeah it's just really satisfying isn't it when you when you control it and you and and you're on top of it you know that that moment when it's like okay this is fine you know i'm gonna and Got a couple of nice waves and surfed them nicely. Yeah, I was stoked. You know what I mean? It's just those little moments, isn't it? Where yeah. you do, you do. And I like the fact that I, I guess when I was younger, I would never even, you'd never even cross your mind if you'd still be doing it in your 40s because 40s just so old, isn't it? It's, you know. But I certainly, in my 20s, I probably didn't really think I'd still be doing it. But what I'm what I'm enjoying about it is the fact that it's just constantly changing. You know, where, where this, like you're saying, the satisfaction that you get is constantly evolving, isn't it? You know, it's, especially if you do all three of them, you know, and you can relate the, you know, you can relate certain movements and 
I'm really I'm almost getting more out of it the older I get really which is something that I didn't really expect the idea like, I remember if I tried to, I've been thinking about this a lot recently the idea that actually despite thinking I was in control a lot of my early exploits were quite reckless and now it's the opposite everything is measured the approach is measured in all of them and it's very rare that I'm reckless but when the stars align when you feel it you can step out just a little bit yeah. in that moment and well you put the work you put the work in to sort of earn that yeah right and I, haven't you and you I know. feel I I don't know I try I'm trying to compare and my memories like they become dull don't they you can't remember how you felt quite as often but I in when I was 21 now I'm 42 I'm trying to think about that and I think I do get more out of it now I genuinely I think I do I had one run this winter whereas on my own which is really unusual for me and it was right at the end of the season the snow was turning but there were some north faces left and I was showing some mates around and I just dived off for one run just found myself on top of quite a big line that I'd done a couple of times that year, but I'd skirted round the top. It was sort of a 15-foot cliff in. But I just was like, I got this. Boof, off the cliff. And then, and I did. I, I actually, I felt it all. And it was, it's the most wonderful feeling. But it really, I surprised myself that I was willing to throw it out there that Yeah, much. was it one of them where after you did it, you were like, wow, where'd that, where'd that come from? Yeah, yeah, completely. Yeah. Exactly that. I was like, oh. It was almost like somebody else did it. And if I was being honest, I think that was probably... I had some great conditions, did loads of stuff, but the confidence I felt in that moment to take a big risk, I was suddenly like, oh, yeah. And I really enjoyed that. That's probably the emotion that I'll take away from the winter most. Nice. Are you still getting it from surfing? Because for a while, that was where you really got it from, wasn't it? Yeah, I went, managed to get to Morocco in October. And that was... How'd you go back to Tarazu? Yeah. How was it? Uh, really good, really depressing. Do you go with the family? Yeah, so much plastic in the water. Yeah, it's, it's horrific. The Moroccan summer, where they have all the Moroccan tourists there, they just litter like it was... I, I was it was really depressing. If I go to a beach, I'll pick up litter. I watched, I was, We're in Brighton today, and I watched a crew of lads laughing at a guy picking up litter. And I went with the kids and was like, come on, let's help him. And we picked up a few bits. I mean, it's two days of really hot weather here, but... So the beaches are disgusting. But in Morocco, it's unbelievable. You walk for 30 seconds and had an arm full of plastic bottles that I couldn't carry. Yeah. And it was that was really hard, especially when that coastline is so wild and pristine. And then this, this shouldn't, it just shouldn't be there. It's so conspicuous because there's not much humanity around chunks of that. So I think by the time most... Europeans get there, make the journey south to get there in the winter. It's maybe washed ashore. It's been washed out to sea. But at that time of year, October, it was just, it was horrific. Where'd you surf? Same place as we went? Yeah, all the usuals that everyone does. But there wasn't much swell. No. Uh, and I I tested the, the bonds of um, marital <laughs> love by going surfing on the only day. There was swell on the last evening and then the morning that we left. So I surfed late that night and then got up and surfed double overhead boilers. Really good, but just rinsed it for half an hour too long. Got out, rammed everything in the car, kids, wife, drove to the airport, got there with an hour to spare, and it's Morocco. And I, no, you've missed this one. Oh, you missed it? I was like, 
begged them. Suki, the kids that had got picked up some bug somewhere oh, and were really God. ill. I didn't so re- I begged them to get the fan. I managed to get uh, Sean and the kids on the flight, <laughs> and I had to stay with the luggage. And this really? Sean looked at me like. You stay. You've done this on purpose. <laughs> You're like staying that. for swell. I'll just keep the board. Yeah. <laughs> see. See you later. See you. I, I didn't do it. I was. I kind of made my peace with it and was ready to leave. So the airport begging. I had to do that once. We went to Turkey. Went to swim across the Hellespont. In fact, um, which was, I think it's like 2007. Zero broke my collarbone. And I remember I got into like super got into swimming as a rehab thing. So I trained to swim across the Hellespont for like i don't know six months or whatever and i washed my passport like about three days before because i'd been away i didn't actually think anything of it i just sort of thought like oh you know whatever like got to got to the standstill they were like didn't bat an eyelid you know got got on the plane got to turkey and they were like nah mate you know you you can't come in and i was like like a wad of thumbed turkish notes i was just like what and they were like no you can't you can't get in here with that what what are you thinking yeah and i pretty much begged and in the end i said i'm here to do the race the the and they all went ah the head is gone (laughs) and um let me in yeah but i was like jesus christ you know trying like built that thing in my head up so much to to like get to do it and then just like Jesus, this this wasn't in the scripts. Like not actually getting in the country because I like dickishly washed my passport. I had a mate who um, he didn't realise when we when I was doing the sailing in Greece, windsurfing, instructing, and delivering yachts. He had to deliver a yacht from Kefalos over to Turkey, and he didn't realise it had been stuffed full of um, decent paracetamol because you can't buy any big name. Uh, pharmaceuticals in Turkey right so to get not decent, what I thought you were going to say but yeah. still contraband let's yeah say. and he turned up and they they searched the boat he's like oh yeah go on board <laughs> they found a thousand paracetamol stuffed up the front they're like oh you should come with us really <laughs> yeah Jesus right yeah well not done that again that's for sure um well we should probably go we're meant to be going to the beach aren't we oh yeah and um yeah and sunny Nice one, man. Well, thanks for doing it again. We're on an hour and a half. Should please some of the people that are asking for, for longer ones anyway. Oh, I hope it's been interesting enough. It's uh, been very enjoyable. Thank you for having me. Yeah, man. Thanks for doing it. Nice. So there you go. That was my conversation with Ed Lee for episode 50. And as you can probably tell, we had a right old laugh doing that one. Always such a pleasure to see Ed. And I'm looking forward to see how the next chapter unfolds for him. So there you go, that was episode 50, which uh, I have to be honest, seems like quite an achievement for the little old Looking Sideways podcast. And I'm uh, definitely in reflective mood today, uh, sitting here above the cliffs in St Agnes, which is where I am, watching a little bit of surf rolling and contemplating getting in after I've recorded this. But yeah, when I started this back at the beginning of 2017, I really had no idea how it would go down, if anyone would even listen to it. So yeah, I've been endlessly gratified over the months to see the audience grow with each episode and to see just how much people are enjoying it really. Uh, case in point, this message I received a few weeks ago from Fiona on Facebook. Yep, I have worked out how to get back on Facebook. Fiona wrote to me, hello Matt, just wanted to say that I love your podcast. It has kept me company for a long time now. I found it when I was in a low point. I was ill waiting for open heart surgery. This meant I couldn't hike, ski, run. I was learning to surf, I was whitewater kayaking, my whole world seemed to have stopped as I was just too tired to do anything but work. Your podcast kept me company, hearing about being outside and on adventures. 
and help keep me sane and give me the determination to get back as soon as I can. I had my surgery last August. It's been a really slow recovery and I've got a long way to go to get where I want to be. I'm also now on medication, so I've had to give up the whitewater rafting and surfing, which was difficult to get my head around. However, I'm getting there. Your podcast now takes me to work and helps me set up for the day as a teacher and gives me ideas for new activities to try. So thanks so much. I mean, how amazing is that, eh? I'm receiving more and more messages and emails from listeners every uh, every episode, it would seem. And it's ace to get them, so please do keep in touch if you're so inclined. As I mentioned a while back, I've, uh, I've bumped into quite a few listeners in the wild recently, and the question they've all asked is, why on earth are you doing this when it's clearly such a shitload of work? Well, it's a completely fair question. There's some people looking walking past actually giving me some extremely odd looks for talking into a microphone at the top of a cliff but there you go um so yeah why am i doing it well it's a really fair question and i've got to say i'm getting as much out of it now as i have since the beginning really i mean what's not to like you get to sit on a cliff in st agnes talking to a microphone while a load of dog walkers look at you like you're absolutely off your rocker um you get to travel around chatting to meet some of the most interesting people i've ever come across and you get to meet your heroes too. I mean, I've had tea with Lane Beachley at a manly house. I've dug veggies with Fergal Smith in Ireland. I've checked out Billy Morgan's bronze medal the week after he came back from the Olympics. I've had Tim Layton Boyce personally show me through the Read and Destroy archive. I've been splitboarding with Stentford and Chamonix during the best winter in 20 odd years. The list goes on. And elsewhere, I've really been enjoying the way that themes are developing around each episode and conversation leaving trails and threads that I can pick up with different people and keep coming back to as the week goes on, which I think is something that um, diehard listeners are definitely getting something out on, out of. And it's been one of the most satisfying and unexpected aspects of the whole Looking Sideways uh, enterprise, really. What else? Well, personally, I've learned that there should be a German word for that tendency you have to put off listening to an interview re- you recorded because you just cannot bear listening to what a dick you sound. Yeah, there should be another German word for that heart-sinking feeling when you realise you've got different accents and tones of voice for different people and situations, which is not a nice thing to realise. Having chatted to other journalist friends of mine, though, I was quite gratified to hear that's quite common. Um, So I'm not going to beat myself up about that too much. Although I have had a few people say to me, why do you talk differently to different people? Um, Yeah, fuck knows. I guess that's just what people do, really. But often not everyone does it speaking into a microphone. But yeah, overall... I'm as stoked on it now as I was when I started, really, and I've already got some amazing guests lined up for the next 50 episodes. So big, big thanks, really, to everyone who's listened to and supported the show over the months, whether that's by listening, talking about it, sharing, leaving me a review, buying some merch, and all that other shit that I wheel out episode after episode. If you've not done any of those things yet, uh, and I know that most people don't because every time I do bump into people, they go, oh, yeah, I'm supposed to leave you a review, aren't I? Sorry. But yeah, thanks for doing 50 episodes. Um then yeah, it might be a good idea to do that now because uh, it would really help me. So thanks a lot. If you can be asked doing that in the meantime, I'm going to go for a surf. It's looking good. Sun's out. Little one foot is coming through. So that'll do me and I'll see you next time. Nice one. (laughs) 